Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll hear about how physical therapists approach back pain. They'll have maybe a disc herniation on an MRI, but like I said, we don't know that that's really what's the cause because there's lots of people who don't have any pain who also have disc herniations and degenerative changes and all those things that we find. Then we'll learn about services that can preserve fatherhood. For sperm freezing, at least two to three ejaculates should be frozen prior to chemo or radiotherapy. And we'll talk with an expert in orthopedic trauma about fracture repairs and what happens when bone breaks don't heal properly. If the bone heals, but it heals in the wrong position, sometimes we have to re-break or make a cut called an osteotomy to realign uh, the bone. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about services that can preserve fatherhood. Then, an orthopedic trauma surgeon will talk about fracture repair. But first, how physical therapists approach back pain. Back pain is a problem to which many people can relate, whether in the short term because of an injury or because of a longer-lasting or chronic situation. Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate Medical University, is here to go over this common problem, its causes and treatments. Welcome, Dr. Rufa. Thanks for having me. Now, back pain is a common complaint, but there's actually many causes of back pain. Can we talk a little about the types of back pain that might bring someone to a physical therapist? Sure. I mean, probably the most common thing that we see with back pain is unknown, unfortunately. It's very difficult to make a diagnosis, and partly it's because we've got all these fancy technologies like MRIs and x-rays, but when you start taking MRIs and x-rays of people without low back pain, they have just as many findings as people who do have low back pain. Really? So it makes it challenging, and most people who come in, we, we label them as this non-specific low back pain category, which then can sometimes make it challenging to know exactly what intervention is going to work best for them. There are some more specific things where people might have irritation of a nerve, which then they have, have symptoms down into their leg, like numbness, tingling, and weakness. And those are a little easier to diagnose. But, um, but really, the, the vast majority of individuals who come in, we can't pinpoint a specific pathology. Like an injury that, or something. Yeah. That's just they'll, have disc, they'll have maybe a disc herniation on an MRI. But like I said, we don't know that that's really what's the cause because there's lots of people who don't have any pain who also have disc herniations and degenerative changes and all those things that we find. Are there differences um, among age, the age spectrum? Are older people more likely? Or there is there is things that we see. Um, you know, as we get older, you you have more degenerative changes. There's things like spinal stenosis that we talk about, which okay. is a narrowing of the spaces where the nerves go through. And a lot of times, the symptoms will be somebody will, if they walk for too long, they might get cramping in their legs or their feet that indicate that maybe they're they're starting to 
to not get um, to get some irritation of those nerves, and then they sit down and they feel better. So that's a common one. And the younger population is in say the 30 to 50 range is more likely to have problems like an acute disc herniation, which maybe will irritate a nerve for a short period of time. But the good news is, is the vast majority of those things get better. On their own? Um, on their own and sometimes with a little bit of treatment. Oh, okay. Well, the, now let's go, let's talk a little bit more about pain. Is the pain, is the way a person describes their pain helpful for helping to diagnose whether, like is the pain from a ruptured disc different from the pain of a pulled muscle? Um, sometimes. Uh, really, the pain, pain is one of those things that's very difficult. Pain is, is an experience that's created by your nervous system and your brain. So the amount of tissue damage and the type of tissue damage that's happening or may not be, uh, may be very different for one person than another and their pain experiences are very different as well. So you could have, you, somebody could have a disc herniation and have um, very sharp pain. Other, some, somebody else might have dull pain that, that, that lasts longer. So it's quite variable, which again makes it a really challenging thing. Wow. And they've studied, low back pain is one of the musculoskeletal problems that's been studied the most. And there's still a lot of confusion. And partly it's because this, the pain system and the, and the pain generation is so complex and in, impacted by many things. And one of the one of the really frustrating parts, and that can be difficult, is not only can you have tissue damage and sometimes not even feel pain at all, but then you can have times when you have lots of pain, and the pain that lasts for a long period of time, and it's really not associated with any tissue damage, and it's more a problem with the nervous system and the nervous system's interpretation of what's going on. So just because you have pain doesn't necessarily mean you've got a pro an injury. Yeah, especially as it gets into a chronic situation. Huh. Acute pain is usually very useful, right? P the pain is our alarm system. It's supposed to warn us that there's, a, there's, there's danger or some potential danger to our tissue. And that's really good right off. If, if, you, twist your, if you twist something and you, your back's a little sore, you want to maybe take it easy for a couple days. So having that pain is useful. But then when it's been weeks or months and your body's had time to heal, but sometimes your nervous system doesn't end up calming back down. So these are the small percentage of people, the two, 3% of individuals who have back pain that go on to have chronic back pain that lasts for mm -hmm. months, maybe even years. And what we're finding more and more is that if we start going around and looking for all these tissue problems, that it really doesn't explain the condition. And really, it's, we're starting to notice that majority of these individuals, it's more of a problem with their nervous system, and their nervous system hasn't calmed itself back down and realized that there's not a threat anymore. So if, it's, if, it's, if pain is the alarm system for the body, at what point do you know that it's time to go see a doctor? Yeah, that can be challenging. Um, if you get through this life without having back pain, you're an oddity. <laughs> Most of us are going to have back pain in our life, 80, 90% of individuals. And the vast majority of that back pain is going to be something simple. It's like the headache you get. You feel it for a short period of time. It goes away and you're fine. Um, so I would say that the pain that maybe is, is very intense, the, okay. the stronger it is, if you're having symptoms like that are that are more worrisome like numbness and or difficulty walking or maybe changes in your bowel or bladder status all very rare things but if they happen they can be indicating that you need to maybe get seen sooner 
Okay. And then if just it's been a, it's been a couple of days or a couple of weeks and your pain's not getting better, um, that's a time to go. Okay. And, and I'll also add that what we're finding is one of the biggest predictors of whether you're going to have problems with pain long term is your thoughts about the pain. Hmm. Is that if you're if you're very if you're very worried about it, if it's having a very large impact on your life, and it's starting to really, um, they call it rumination. If you're starting to really really think about it all the time, that's a, a really good sign to get in and that you might be at a higher risk oh, wow. for this pain to last longer. And get in to see somebody who can help you to kind of put it into a context and, and, and help you learn how you can move and be and be okay with not have as much pain. Okay. So if it's really bothering you, not just physically, but yeah. bothering you mentally, like every time you step or turn, you're wondering yes. what is going and that's, okay. and that's been a big shift. And, and it's been a big shift in the research but as all as very often we've been a little slower on the uptake on the clinical side to realize that we still okay. sometimes focus on those other things too much and don't really listen to the patient and see if if this is how much of an impact it's having on their life and how much they're worrying about it okay this is amber smith host of upstate's health link on air talking with adam rufa a doctor of physical therapy about back pain so um, what sorts of treatments are being used these days? I know the American College of Physicians issued some guidelines recently that um, basically said patients need to be active and waited out yeah. regarding back pain. So, You know, years ago, somebody would have back pain and the advice was, okay, go lay down in bed for a while. Take out, you know, rest, relax. And it, it made sense at the time. But then as we start studying it more, we find that, it's probably the worst advice we can give people. Um, really, the best thing is to stay is to stay moving and to try to keep with your normal activity as best you can. If that's not working and you do seek care, there, there's lots of interventions. And and that that guideline you just mentioned, one of the big things that they are pushing is that medication should not necessarily be your first defense. Hmm. And one of the things, and one of the reasons for that is is that that medication doesn't really impact the course of the disease, but it, they come with risks, especially if you get into things like opioids. And we've been talking a lot about right. this opioid epidemic. And so we're really pushing people to stay away from those. But even things like NSAIDs and Tylenol have their risks. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Yes, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. They, they, have, they have risk and lots of people are injured by those. So especially if you take them for a long period of time. Right. So you should always consult with your doctor before you start taking something like that. But really getting getting active doing exercise and, and even now some of these more mind body things and, and and some 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 education about what pain is and relaxation and getting good sleep are all really important things to getting mm. better okay well and in physical therapy yes it may be a prescription that yeah physical therapy um the nice thing is is in 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 new york state now you can access a physical therapy therapist directly you can come right to us um and a lot of times what the the intervention will be focused on is again trying to trying to get you moving. And there can be some tools like massage or manual therapy where you where we move the back either quickly or slowly, um, which can then just reduce the pain to help people move more. But the the real key is just getting moving, getting active, and really showing your body that it's safe to move and allowing the nervous system to calm down. So tell me, um, what is sort of like a first appointment like for someone who comes to a physical therapist with back pain? What can they expect at the first appointment? 
I'm glad you asked that because that can sometimes be anxiety producing as well. Right. And, and physical therapists, I think, get a reputation of, you know, pain and torture. And really, if you have somebody as a physical therapist and, and their mentality is pain and torture, that might not be the right person for you. <laughs> okay. But really, when a person comes in, they, they often have some, some paperwork like you normally have to do to fill out to give us some information. And then we sit down depending on, on the place you're at, for half hour, an hour, to really just hear your story, to find out what happened, and then to gather information. We'll kind of have an idea of what we want to do, and we'll, move, we'll run you through some movements. You maybe push and poke at, your bo- at, at different parts of your back to try to see you know, where the places are that have the most pain. And then often start intervention right off, and it might be an exercise, it may be some kind of hands-on therapy. Does it, does, will a person necessarily leave the physical therapy office feeling better than when they came in or not necessarily? That's always our goal, <laughs> okay. but it doesn't always happen. And it, sometimes it depends on the state the person's coming in on. If somebody comes in and what we, they have really intense pain, it can sometimes be more difficult at that time to get, to get, get that it under control. down. But okay. there are some things that we can do. And, and then on the other sense, sense, sometimes if somebody's had pain for a very long time, we'll see patients who've had pain for months or even years and then usually that kind of stuff takes a little longer to respond because it's been going on longer but i i always i always don't feel like i'm i'm really successful unless i've given that person something that helps them manage their pain that first that they take with them yeah to to take with them because and that's one of the ultimate goals is, is that you don't need the physical therapist that we get you to a point as soon as possible where you can deal with your symptoms and manage them on your own okay well, let's talk, before we end this, let's talk a little bit about the profession of physical therapy. It seems to me that it's a field that's growing, um, and you represent the, uh, uh, the physical therapy education department here at Upstate. What? Yeah, I have a long history with Upstate. I started, I, I came to school here and graduated in, in 2002 with my master's in physical therapy, and then came back through uh, Upstate and got my doctorate, and now okay. I'm, 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 lucky to be on faculty here and it is a growing field we're often ranked as like the top 10 professions when you look at these different rankings and the education has really changed over the years we started out with just a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. and now we're at a doctorate level pretty much all over the country and so students often uh, complete a four-year degree and sometimes we have early admissions that can be after three years and they have some prerequisites and they come in and they have um, three years of PT school, which includes um, usually about two years of classwork with intermingled clinical experiences. So Hmm. at at Upstate, they have three different clinical experiences. um, And they have, well, they have several different clinical experiences. Some are small, some are longer. Um, Right now, our third years are out, and they have their last two, which are each 10 weeks. So it's really, it's a great education. There's a lot to learn. And, and individuals need to have, they need to have good grades, but they also really need to be people persons. They need to be able to, to make, sit down with somebody and make them feel comfortable right off talking to them and, and really discussing things that are, that are often a difficult, a difficult um, part of their life. Do you find um, people that end up in physical therapy, did they, were they biology majors or? Yeah, a lot of times they're science, they're science based, but you know, we also like to get those English majors sometimes, and, and they're a little out, out of the normal mold because they bring, they're very well-rounded, sometimes they're very good communicators, and communication is so important. Okay. 
Neat. Well, it's exciting. Well, thank you so much for coming in to talk about back pain. This has been Upstate HealthLink on Air, speaking with Dr. Adam Rufa, a doctor of physical therapy at Upstate Medical University. Stay tuned. Next, options for preserving fatherhood on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Welcome to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Some cancers and some cancer treatments cause male reproductive damage, but a variety of techniques are available today that can help men preserve their ability to father children later in life. Here to explain the science behind these techniques and their importance to men and boys of all ages is Dr. Kazim Chohan, the director of Upstate's Andrology Department and leader of the Male Fertility Preservation Program, and Dr. Jody Seema, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in Hematology and Oncology. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're here to talk about male reproductive damage that can happen because of cancer or cancer treatment and the techniques available to preserve the ability to father children later in life. So I'd like to have you, Dr. Chohan, explain what's available. And we should also say this isn't just for cancer patients, but there could be other um, issues that a, a man would want to preserve fertility for, right? Well, uh, majority of chemo and radiotherapies, they produce kind of a permanent to temporary damage to the sperm cells. Okay. And uh, to overcome that, uh, the best techniques available are that the patient should freeze sperm before undergoing chemo or radiotherapy. Okay. The sperm, for sperm freezing, at least two to three ejaculates should be frozen prior to chemo or radiotherapy. And uh, the other options available for the patients who cannot produce ejaculates or either freeze testicular tissue or testicular aspirations for them. And okay. these can be frozen f for like uh, many years. And the, these are also, there are also techniques available or the procedures available for the husbands who are staying away from home from longer period of times, like they are deployed military in the military. Military deployment or? <laughs> or patients who are undergoing uh, vasectomy normally two to three years post vasectomy patients develop men develop anti-sperm antibodies it's much better for them to freeze sperm if they want to have babies in future later okay yeah. all right well um at what point do does this come up when does a physician bring this up with a patient Dr. Uh, sure. So that's an ongoing conversation. It's obviously a conversation you want to have right in the beginning when a patient walks in the door. It doesn't matter if they're three months old, three years old, or 30 years old. You want to take a minute to address, will this therapy affect their fertility? Will it not? Uh, the hard part about that is, let's say the initial cancer therapy wouldn't affect their fertility. It's not going to be a big threat. You may think, oh, well, this isn't a big deal to discuss it. The problem with that is, what if that cancer comes back? And what if that cancer comes back before the effects, which Kazim talked about, you can have this temporary effect, which lots of patients get, 
Um, and the temporary is okay, it'll go away. But if you just finished chemo and you're still in time for temporary effect from your first treatment and your second treatment starts, which will hurt your fertility, you may not have any chance to... And you've lost your opportunity. Right, the window is closed. So so that can be difficult. So you have a conversation in the beginning and, and that varies. You might have a 15-year-old who is very interested in sperm banking and is able to do that. Or you may have a 15-year-old who is scared, who's just been told they had cancer, who's overwhelmed and sick. And right. they may not be able to do that. It's when you think about the logistics of what they have to do to sperm bank, that can be a really difficult thing. So with that same patient, um, that may be a conversation that comes up again later on in life. So it's an ongoing dialogue that's different for every single patient. It's important to talk about it on day one to make sure these patients have different opportunities. And that's what Kazim and I are working on, making sure if that 15-year-old is unable to sperm bank, maybe a testicular biopsy while he's getting a central line place for his treatment would be something more palatable and something mm. he'd be able to do. So it's really about no matter where we are in this conversation, giving them opportunities. Okay. And what you just mentioned, um, that's is that under study? Here? So, yeah, so uh, it's uh, the procedure itself has been done for many years. And what's really interesting is many years ago for kids with leukemia, testicular biopsies were actually just part of their surveillance. Oh. So the, phys the, the surgical procedure itself, having nothing to do with fertility, was done all the time. So uh, as of uh, re more recently in the past few years, across the country, it's coming up as a way to preserve testicular tissue. And there's a lot of cool stuff being done with that testicular tissue in the hopes that it will be able to make babies. Um, and while right now today, that may not be, uh, we may not be able to say, oh yes, I just froze your tissue, I can unfreeze it, and we can help you father a child today. Oftentimes these are young kids, and we're not looking at today, we're looking at 10 to 15 years down the line. So this really may open a lot of doors for our patients. The effect, let's say you're five and you're diagnosed with cancer, you don't remember a conversation about your fertility, when you're in follow-up care and you're so 10. a lot of those conversations are with the parents, right? Yes, yes. When you're 10, you don't care about that conversation. Right. When you're 15, most of the time you don't care about that conversation. It's when you get to be 18, 19, 20, that all of a sudden these, these young adults realize this cancer they had long ago uh, is taking something from them. And if they're infertile, that is a huge impact. And it's a big second loss. And you really see them struggle mm -hmm. with that. So if you have something to offer them, that'll help them in 15 years. It, it uh, It's easy to forget in the beginning, but it makes a big difference. Okay. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. We're talking about preserving male fertility with Drs. Kazim Chohan and Jody Seema. Dr. Chohan leads the Andrology Lab in the Male Fertility Preservation Program at Upstate, and Dr. Seema is a pediatric cancer doctor here. Dr. Seema, can you walk us through sort of how a conversation would go between you and, say, the parents of a young child facing sure. cancer? You know, so when you sit down and you're having a conversation with parents, there's an awful lot on their minds, and every parent, uh, every parent takes this a little bit differently. So when you're giving them information, it's your kid has cancer, right, and that, and that is an overwhelming piece of information. Right then at that time, 
different parents have a different ability to absorb the importance of fertility. You know, some parents right off the bat are concerned and they want to know, is it, are they going to be able to have babies when they grow up? Some parents just say, are they going to live till next week, right? right. And that, right. those are both very legitimate concerns. So really all these conversations, it's important to touch on it and say, uh, either I don't expect this to make your child infertile or I do. Um, and there are some things we may or may not be able to do uh, based on that. And, and I think, um, you know, you it's important to give them the minimal amount of information that gets them through without overwhelming people and really addressing what's important to them. But, it, but at some point, all patients need, need that addressed. Okay. Well, Dr. Chohan, can you explain what it is? It's, it's the chemotherapy or the radiation that, that does the damage to the fertility, right? Well, both chemotherapies and radiotherapies, they can damage the germ cells in the testes. And uh, germ cells are the dividing cells, and they are most sensitive to chemo and radiotherapies. And sometimes there are multiple chemotherapies. Then okay. they become more toxic to them. In some patients, they recover, and they start regenerating or reproducing sperm cells. But the quality of these cells is questionable. They may have some genetic impact on the future offspring. So chemo and radio both are negative. And okay. especially in whole body radia radiation, the gentleman or the child may have no germ cells left in the testes. Okay. Well, can either of you speak to what uh, impact this f on, on females and what services are available for females as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's interesting that you see is when you're talking about fertility in particular, males... Um, testicles are a bit wimpier than ovaries, you know, and it takes much less of the same chemotherapy and radiation to knock them out. Really? Um, okay. so, so it's interesting in that the ovaries tend to be a little more resilient. Again, dose per dose to chemotherapy effects. What you see in the women can oftentimes be premature menopause. So while I have normal periods as a teenager and in my young 20s, uh, many women are waiting later and later to have babies. Sure. Um, it's very common now to be in your 30s and having children. Uh, that's very different than it was a few decades ago. So those women, if someone doesn't sit down and say to them, wow, you weren't infertile, that's great, but your chance of having a baby at 30 is much like someone else at 40, uh -oh. and hey, you may hit menopause at 35, that really changes how they do life planning. Sure. And for these women... It's very important to have a conversation earlier about ovarian um, uh, preservation. And so there's different techniques as well for the women. You can take a piece of ovary just like we do the testicle and freeze it. And there's actually been successful pregnancies from that. So you can do that for prepubertal girls as well. Um, there's some techniques that are very important where the mature egg gets stimulated and you collect eggs. It used to be that we collected eggs and then fertilized them, sometimes with donor sperm or, or uh, a, a partner sperm, something like that. Um, and it used to be that embryos, so a fertilized embryo, was much easier to make a baby from than an egg. And now uh, eggs are working better and better. So uh, the embryos, uh, frozen embryos, get you into a lot of legality later on. Right. Because let's say that uh, partner you have that you think you're with forever when you're 23 and have cancer and you make babies and you freeze embryos, those are half his. And there have been many legal cases where those sure. are actually taken away. Sure. So we, we encourage egg freezing um, 
we don't yet have ovarian tissue cryopreservation, which is that taking that mm -hmm. piece of ovary and putting it in the freezer here yet. Our goal is to get the male program up and running because they are more at risk uh, before we, we run into getting the ovarian program running. And we've done a lot of groundwork you know, to yes. get that ovarian program growing. Uh, we're just trying to attack it one piece at okay. a time. So. All right. Well, Dr. Chohan, how long, um, how long can you freeze sperm for? Yes, so there is no, uh, the cryobiology is relatively a new science, and there is no kind of uh, expiry date on these samples, but I can assure you something that uh, these cells will be viable, and they will be available during the reproductive life of that person. The, we have seen data from dairy industry that the semen samples frozen from bulls in 1950s, they are still producing wonderful calves. Sperm frozen yeah, in frozen. the 1950s. And okay. uh, I just came through a study that a semen sample frozen in 1970s uh, like uh, resulted in a successful pregnancy in 2012. Huh. So I should say there is uh, like no life limit, but at least if we say 50 years, that's okay. a reproductive, that's even more than reproductive life of a male. Right. So these cells will be available for, during that normally productive life. Is there any change or any genetic damage? Well, uh, there are two aspects I want to clear, that these uh, chemo and radiotherapies, they do create, they may create genetic or chromosomal damage. But cryopreservation has not re resulted in such damage. Uh, okay. There, there, I will say there will be less and less or negligible chances of having any genetic impact on frozen samples, and they result in equal pregnancy rates, like frozen versus uh, fresh samples. You will okay. get almost equal pregnancy rates for couples. Are there any um, concerns about, I mean, how? walk me through the process. If someone has a donation and um, it's stored here? For uh, well, uh, we are a donor programs. We are not running donor program. It has a lot many legalities with federal government and all that. We are just doing client depositors. Or client depo okay. Yes. Deposit. And uh, for that, uh, we prefer that, uh, on, that we at least get two to three ejaculates from a gentleman. Okay. So we can at least have eight to ten vials which can be used for artificial, artificial insemination. This will be the much economical procedure for the couple. And uh, once we get the sample, we do evaluate them for the quality and the concentration of sperm. After that, we just purchase the state-of-the-art uh, equipment that it seals the frozen vials in a way that the chances of cross-contamination are not there. So it's secured so it's that secured, nobody else can. Nobody else. And uh, we, these samples are double labeled, so the identity are like all those issues are not there. Okay, okay. And then they stay for they, X number of years? They, they will be with us, and uh, we have an option that if a person moves to another state, mm -hmm. we'll ship their samples to the choice of uh, clinic they make, and they will be shipped by FedEx to that place. And, it's just and it, it can be shipped within the United States or even overseas. Okay. Wherever, wherever they want to have their fertility treatment in future. Neat. Okay. Well, what other things are on the horizon in terms of this field? Is there... Uh, well, uh, in, in, uh, in the science of andrology, uh, it's much more moving towards uh, genetics. 
and in assisted reproduction we want to have like uh, successful pregnancies and science is more moving towards pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and uh, if you have gone through like a recent report this week even there are talks about gene editing to have right. successful right. normal babies so this is uh, science is more to moving towards reprogenetics where reproduc- assisted reproduction okay. and genetics will be combined together to have healthy babies interesting okay well thank you i want to thank both of you for speaking with me about preserving future fatherhood We've been listening to Dr. Kazim Chohan, the director of the Male Fertility Preservation Program, and Dr. Jody Seema, a pediatric cancer doctor on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Bad me, bad you, or a useful question. Well, folks, two days ago, I was at an intense meeting with a bunch of colleagues about a tough issue for us. At one point, someone got provocative to me, and I said something I regret to her, who I usually really like overall. But at that moment, I was instantly steamed and out it popped with no real warning. And then others piped up and piled on. I wish I could take my piece back, you betcha, but can't. So now what? Well, first, I've been paying attention to what I've been thinking since. Notice I've been getting down on myself, blaming myself, feeling bad about myself. Bad, rich, you should be ashamed. Then I ask myself, is blaming myself useful? Hmm, well, other than that little bit that's useful for taking responsibility and apologies, apologizing to my friend and colleagues for my part, new just makes me feel bad about myself. So, I stopped blaming me, watched my thinking and feeling to see what happened. And, well, I felt better about myself... I found a good chunk of me blaming my friend with, well, she started it, etc., etc., etc. So I asked myself, is blaming her useful? Well, yes, useful helping me feel self-righteous and superior, which does feel a lot better than blaming me, but ultimately, no. It just keeps a bad moment going. So stop that and watched again what happened to my thinking and feeling. And surprise, I discovered wonder, curiosity about the problem that got me and all us usually level-headed people spouting off. What was it about this topic under discussion that was so emotionally intense for our group that we avoided it and our feelings about it by spouting rather than listening and problem-solving? I don't know yet, but now I'm planning for our next meeting and what I, and hopefully we, can do differently. Be more patient. Deep breath, deep breath with the lurking frustration over our differences here. And instead of using that energy, that frustrated energy, 
to blame me or blame you. Use it to listen, understand each other, and just maybe solve the problem instead. Good luck to us. I'm Dr. Rich, a work in progress, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, repairing bone fractures. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Central New Yorkers break bones just about every day, whether by falling in car wrecks, ski accidents, or other emergencies. That means a considerable number of people face unplanned surgery for orthopedic trauma. One of Upstate's trauma fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeons is Dr. Brian Kissler, and he's here to talk with us about what he does. Thanks for being here, Dr. Kissler. Thank you for having me. Well, we have had um, people on the show recently that have explained to listeners about what it means that Upstate University Hospital is the only level one trauma center in the region, and basically that Upstate is the place to go for serious traumatic injuries. But you're specialized beyond that in that you provide orthopedic trauma care. So what does that mean? What are the types of patients you take care of? That's a great question. Um, At Upstate, uh, like you mentioned, we have a a whole host of physicians and nurses and staff that uh, take care of trauma patients. And uh, multiple times, um, often, patients come in with multiple injuries, uh, including injuries that kind of fall under the umbrella of orthopedic injuries. There's general surgery injuries. People can have um, uh, injuries to their head and neck, to their spine. Uh, Where my role uh, falls into that is um, more or less taking care of broken bones, to kind of put it plainly. Um, if you have an internal organ injury, something's wrong with your heart, your lungs, that's taken care of by another uh, aspect of our team. Um, but uh, we, we deal mostly with bones and joints and putting, uh, simply put, kind of putting bones back together again. So w- are you working at the same time on the same patient? If Say that they have their liver's been in- injured and that needs repair at the same time bones need to be repaired. Are, you, are different surgeons working on the patient at the same time? There are situations when... Uh, kind of a simultaneous team approach is needed. Uh, sometimes in situations where we have a broken bone or a dislocated joint, and there's also a vascular injury, uh, or um, are some situations where we are doing uh, some temporary stabilizing work uh, in orthopedic fashion, and uh, then our general surgery colleagues uh, will take care of their uh, portion of the, uh, of the care. Um, but I would say the majority of the time uh, we're doing things separate, where we take care of our part. And then uh, it moves to... In a sequential, yeah, and then another another day, um, if there's another surgery that's needed, they'll come back to the OR for another okay. procedure. Okay. Uh, so I'd say it does happen from time to time, but uh, it's not the uh, not the norm. Okay. Well, now you're trauma fellowship trained. Can you explain what it means for an orthopedic surgeon to be trauma fellowship trained? Sure. Uh, so for orthopedics, um, 
the standard residency is five years, where you get basic training in all aspects of orthopedics for five years. So that's after medical school, which is four years. Correct. So we're up to nine. Up to nine. We're keeping count here. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, as an orthopedic surgeon, you can choose to do an extra year of training in uh, certain subspecialties. There's multiple subspecialties. Uh, take, for example, there's sports medicine, oh, joint mm -hmm. replacement, uh, spine, uh, hand surgery, and, and there's others as well. But trauma is one of those specialties. Um, where if you choose, you can do an extra year of training uh, to focus specifically on some of the more complicated fractures, uh, maybe some of the more uh, fractures that aren't seen uh, as often, and uh, some of the higher, uh, kind of more difficulty, uh, so some of the more difficult procedures. Uh, we spend that year kind of just focusing on uh, getting better at treating those injuries. Okay, okay. Um, did you do your the trauma residency, where did you go for that? So I went to Tampa, Florida. Tampa, okay. Yeah, there's a fellowship in uh, Tampa, Florida at Tampa General Hospital, and uh, I was able to focus mm -hmm. for that year uh, specifically on treating uh, fractures and, uh, again, some of the more complicated fractures that, that we tend to see here at Upstate. Okay, all right. Well, now, um, is most of your work emergency where you get summoned, because these are things that can't be planned, um, where you get summoned to come and operate, you know, that afternoon or that that night or whatever? Uh, yes and no. So um, most of what I do, and I'd probably say about 80 to 90% of what I do, uh, falls under the umbrella of what we call acute trauma, where someone comes in the hospital, they had an unplanned injury, either a car accident, a motorcycle accident, maybe a fall off a roof, and they have acute injuries that need to be dealt with. Now, um, luckily it for orthopedics, a lot of times uh, we have a little bit of a window, uh, and so sometimes when people come in in the middle of the night, uh, the injuries can wait until the next day, and then we'll take care of them uh, when the sun's still out, okay. as opposed to in the middle of the night. Uh, there are a few injuries that we need to address uh, Promptly. right then right and there uh, in an emergent fashion. But I'd say the majority of what I take care of, uh, we have a you know window of you know, a day or two to take care of it, so we don't need to rush in. Um, okay. But we do need to come in and take care of them. And uh, this the is, day, um, so. you take care of adults and children? I do, Both. yes. Okay. How, um, how often do you find yourself in the operating room? Uh, I'm in the operating room quite a bit. I operate probably on average uh, three or four days a week. Wow. And I uh, find myself at uh, University Hospital uh, most days. Okay. Well, we're talking with Dr. Brian Kissler about orthopedic trauma on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Um, now, does every bone fracture require the expertise of someone like yourself who has special training in orthopedic trauma? Uh, no. Uh, I think um, there are a number of fractures and a uh, number of fractures that are treated at other hospitals uh, in our area and they are treated um, well and uh, the orthopedic surgeons in the community uh, do a great job. Um, but those tend to be more of the more common injuries, uh, more of the less complicated injuries. Uh, anything that's uh, more complex um, or again kind of more rare uh, tends to come to us okay. at Upstate. So more complex meaning... Um like, the, like, how would a patient know um, if what they've got is a fracture that needs a traumatic uh, care or not? The fractures that are open through the skin mm -hmm. are more complex, right? Fractures that are open through the skin are more complex. Um, also, the location of the fracture uh, can sometimes dictate the complexity. Um, fractures that occur in the, around the foot and the ankle, um, mm. especially fractures of the calcaneus and the talus, which are um, bones in your foot. Uh, those tend to be uh, taken care of more by people who have done a fellowship in, in trauma. Uh, also, fractures of the uh, pelvis and acetabulum, uh, which are 
uh, in your pelvis and around your hip joint. In the hip, okay. Tend to be fractures that we take care of uh, at Upstate that uh, other institutions uh, tend to transfer uh, to our care. Uh, also, fractures that are around a joint. If you break your bone uh, in the middle of the bone, um, away from a, a joint, away from your knee, away from your hip, uh, those tend to be a little bit um, kind of can fall in the realm of someone who is, does more general, straightforward, more yeah, more straightforward. Someone who can do general orthopedics can usually take care of that very well. Uh, if you have a broken bone around a joint, around your knee joint, uh, you have a um, what we call a tibial plateau fracture or a distal femur fracture. Those are both uh, injuries that. Um, where the break actually goes into the knee joint itself or the ankle joint. We call those uh, pilon fractures. Uh, mm. Those tend to be more, uh, more complicated injuries, uh, usually a little harder, uh, a little more uh, challenging from a tentacle standpoint, and those tend to come our way uh, a little more often. Okay, okay. Now, I understand, um, too, that you have somewhat of a specialization in what's called non-unions, uh, where fractures haven't healed properly, or malunions, where they've healed with an improper alignment. So mm -hmm. do you, in those cases, are you like re-operating or what, what do you do for those? Um, often, yes. Uh, often we, uh, we do have to re-operate on those. Um, uh, treating uh, patients with uh, acute injuries uh, is not an exact science. And um, mm. a lot of times don't, things don't go uh, according to plan. And uh, again, there's a lot of good surgery that's being done in the community. Um, by other orthopedic surgeons, and uh, at times they will uh, fix a fracture and it doesn't heal all the way, uh, either because of the traumatic nature of the injury. Uh, sometimes people are at a little bit of a disadvantage because of other medical conditions that oh, um, okay. that may make their bone not heal. And then uh, oftentimes if they've uh, proven that they're not healing, they get referred to us or referred to myself, someone like myself, and uh, we usually do another surgery to stimulate that bone to heal, through another, usually through another procedure. Does it involve like re-breaking the bone under anesthesia and getting? Sometimes, uh, again, for the um, if the bone heals but it heals in the wrong position, sometimes we have to re-break or make a cut or call an osteotomy to realign uh, the bone. Uh, sometimes, if the bone hasn't healed and we have what we call a non-union, uh, then it's it never heals. You have to re-break it, but you have to realign it or um, again stimulate the bone to heal so that it uh, uh, can unite. Because the bone will um, knit itself back together, right? If you have two two sides of it, you put it together and it'll find its way back? Most of the time it does. That's what it's supposed to That's happen? That's what it's supposed to happen. Okay. But uh, again, we have there's situations, again, either because the uh, the limb or the leg was, or the upper extremity was just too traumatized and uh, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. Okay. Uh, and so then we intervened to, to make it do that. Interesting. Well, I've heard um, people say that when you break a bone, it grows back stronger. Is there any truth to that, or what, um, what do they mean by that? Yes, there is. Uh, there, yes and no. So when a bone breaks, uh, naturally uh, your body forms what we call callus, and that's kind of just calcification and uh, mm. your bone heals. Now, a lot of times uh, if it heals properly and um, you'll have a, uh, an area of bone that's, that's essentially a little bit wider and a little bit stronger in that area. So oh. um, sometimes when you re-break, you actually break next to that that area there so interesting all right well um i know this is going to be specific to each individual patient but in general what is recovery like um for a traumatic uh, repair of a, of a broken bone is that, um, there's going to be a cast involved probably right uh sometimes there is if we uh usually we use casts for patients that we don't 
do surgery on. So if you're being treated uh, for a broken bone and it doesn't require a surgery, uh, sometimes we'll put you in a cast and let the bone, let Mother Nature take care of itself. Uh, If we do a surgery for you, uh, most of the time we don't put people in casts. One of the advantages of doing the surgery is that we can get you moving your joint faster, get you moving your knee or your ankle, and uh, try to work on uh, kind of expediting the therapy process. I was going to say that probably means rehabilitative therapy is ahead. Exactly. Uh, Usually, uh, after we do the surgery, um, our goals for the patients are to make sure they can uh, work on range of motion. Okay. Um, The the bone and the leg should feel stable, and you should feel that even though you're going to be uncomfortable, you're going to have pain, you should feel like you're able to move the the joints above and below where you broke. And then, uh, again, it's it's fracture or injury specific, um, but usually by you know six weeks, eight weeks, uh, most patients are feeling better um, to the point where they're able to regain a lot more of their function. Uh, depending on the break, uh, we may be able to let you put weight on it, oh. either mm-hmm. right away or sometimes in a delayed fashion, depending on when the break is. But uh, for most patients, usually by about two or three months, uh, you're able to put weight on your injury again. And so I think if you're not able to do that or you find that you're still having pain past that two or three month period or your function's not returning, that may be a sign that something's not... It's not working. Not working right. Well, well, thank you. I appreciate you being here to talk about this. Thank you for having Um, me. We've been talking with Dr. Brian Kissler. He's a trauma fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon at Upstate, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Catherine Howd Mahan, a professor of writing at Ithaca College, is the author of 32 published collections. Her latest chapbook is called Wild Grapes, Poems of Fox. I love how Mahan creates such vivid portraits of people caught in crisis or life-affirming moments. Listen now to two such poems. The first is titled, Where the Earth Makes New from Old. Leaves fall as cancer permeates her blood. A woman in midlife who's done her best to dance and rise against the deadly thud of so what, who cares, there's no heaven test. She started life a girl with strong green dreams, her father's garden, mother's story voice, then quickly learned a shadow's what it seems an older brother's hands, no room for choice. She pulled away. Good books, the poems she wrote, whole worlds in finding out who she could be, yet always those gray fingers at her throat. The doctors tell her seven months or so, she stands to watch October's gold wind blow. Her second poem is a happier one called Twelve String Guitar. She's taking it slow at first, this learning finger by finger on silver wires stretched long and taut from neck to belly of elegant, sturdy, polished wood. She's writing a song for her survival, seeking serenity, strum and pluck the way to find a higher power, shaping poem and chord and voice, good pressure on unpolished frets, a growing strength in sure release, New music fills her world at last, and she can offer others peace.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please listen next week on HealthLink on Air when we will tell about the life-saving medication you can get over-the-counter that can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.